Good morning. Let's start off in prayer. Father God, you have said in your word that you have searched us and known us. You know before a word is going to be on our lips, you know our rising, our sitting down, you know our coming and our going. So how could we ever hide anything from you? We pray during these next few minutes together that your spirit would search our hearts, that you would help us to see where we have gone astray, where we have turned the other way from you. And we pray by the grace of your Holy Spirit that you would turn us back towards you, that you would lead our hearts in gentle repentance. What a beautiful thing it is to turn away from our sin and to turn back to Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you're always there waiting to receive us. So be with us now as we meditate on your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have a question to start us off with. Have you ever failed to heed an important warning? National Geographic tells us the story of the first and only voyage of the Titanic. You probably know the story. Three days after the Titanic set sail from Southampton, England, on its maiden voyage, Captain Edward J. Smith followed a normal Sunday routine. He inspected the ship, but declined to conduct a scheduled safety drill. He led a worship service, and then he met with the officers to fix the ship's position. According to their calculations, the Titanic averaged a very sprightly 22 knots. And as the sun set on April 14, 1912, the temperature lowered to freezing. The sea's surface shone like glass, making it hard to spot the icebergs that were common in the North Atlantic in spring. Nevertheless, Captain Smith kept the ship at full speed. He believed the crew could react in time if any were sighted. And the rest, as we know, is history. A friend recently told me a story about teaching her youngest child to cook. She had pulled a stool up to the stove top and let the child climb up on it. As they started cooking, she repeatedly warned the child not to touch the burner as it was extremely hot and would hurt them very badly. The child nodded along and kept helping. My friend turned away for a second to grab a forgotten ingredient. And all of a sudden, the child was crying out in pain. My friend looked at the child bewildered and exclaimed, why did you touch that? I told you it would hurt you. The child looked at her between sniffles and confessed, I just had to see for myself. Now, I'm sure that you have had a similar experience at some point in your life. I'm sure you have learned the consequences of failing to heed a timely warning. Sometimes those consequences are large, like the Titanic, and sometimes they're much smaller, like a burned fingertip. In our passage today, the prophet Ezekiel is being told by God to give Israel a grave warning. Repent or die. The stakes could not be higher. With that in mind, 
I want us to turn to our passage and to see how God's people respond. So we're in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 3, verses 16 to 27. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning, nor you speak to them, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will have delivered your own soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. But you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Now, some of you all are probably wondering how much I had to pay Pastor Mike to give me this passage to preach on. No, I did not. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. The prophets can be very hard to understand, right? That's not just a you thing. It's all of us. They're tough. And the reason they're tough for us is twofold. First, we really don't know the Old Testament all that well. The prophets quote other scripture all the time. The other scripture for them was the Old Testament. If you're being honest, how many times have you read or studied the book of Ezekiel in its whole before we started this sermon series? For me, it was just once, and that's probably one more time than most of the average Christians. The second reason we have a tough time with the prophets is that we want to try to make their words literal. When God spoke to the prophets, he frequently gave them pictures or allegories to help them and the people of Israel understand what he was saying. If we try to take allegories and make them literal, then we will create a tangled, convoluted, and sometimes contradictory theology. So, as we start this passage, I want us to promise two things. One, we're going to use other scriptures to help us understand. And two, we'll see Ezekiel's words as pictures and not take them literally. So with those things in mind, God starts this passage by giving Ezekiel a picture of a watchman. A watchman's job is twofold, to watch for impending danger and to promptly warn their people of the impending danger. Watch and warn. That's their job description in a nutshell. There was much impending danger that was headed Israel's way in the form of God's coming judgment. Here's how Christopher Wright sets the scene. Picture an Israelite village or city in the time of an invasion, or the army encampment during a military campaign. Sentries would be posted by day or by night on a tower or some kind of elevated place, and they would be charged with the crucial task 
of watching for any movements of their enemy. If they spotted any such danger, it was their responsibility to blow a trumpet or a horn or to call out loudly, early warning saved lives. Sentry duty was thus an awesome responsibility. This, then, is the urgent commission that Yahweh now lays upon Ezekiel. In wartime, a watchman could mean the difference between life and death. If you grew up in the American school system, you've probably heard the name Paul Revere. In fact, you might have had to memorize Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride, for school. But in case it's been a second or two since you've been through those lessons, here's a little refresher. Revere was a silversmith by trade, but he wanted to help the Revolutionary War efforts, so he was brought in on a plan to do so. As night fell on April 18, 1775, the British were spotted, and Revere was commissioned to ride by horse to warn the Patriots of the impending British attack. His ultimate goal was to get to Lexington to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock. In, in, on the way, his cries of the British are coming, the British are coming, gave many enough time to adequately arm themselves and to have victory over the British. A good watchman can quite literally save the day. Now, the watchman can't guarantee that people will take the warning seriously and do what is necessary to save themselves. But that's not their job. The watchman's job is to watch and warn. The response of the people is on the people themselves. Okay, so in case you're thinking that's really theoretical and nice, Jennifer, okay, here's where we're going to make it practical, okay? This does have something to do with you. Now, you and I will probably never be called to warn a whole nation to repent. I don't know, maybe, but probably not. So I want to pause and define the word repent. Repentance simply means to turn away from sin and to turn back towards God. Turn away from sin and turn back towards God. It involves agreeing with God in our mind, feeling sorry for our sins in our heart, and making appropriate changes in our actions. Now, we will probably, remember, never be called by God to warn a whole nation to repent, but God might ask us to warn one person that their actions are dangerous to them. He might have us call someone living in darkness to turn and walk in his light. He might have us share the hope of eternal life through Jesus. So then, what does it look like for you and I to be watchmen in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, and our friend groups? This is an appropriate time for us to go back to rule number one, and we're going to use other scripture to help give us some guiding principles. So as we think through what it looks like in our lives to be faithful watchmen and watchwomen, Let's see what God's word has to say. So the first principle, keep an eye on your own heart and life. In Matthew 7, 5, Jesus said, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Second, good warnings always offer hope. In 1 Peter, we're told, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. Number three, be a true friend by telling the truth. Proverbs tells us better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Number four, forgive like God does. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Number five, the point of God's discipline is always restoration. Galatians says, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Next to last, I lost track of my numbers, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Hebrews tells us to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of your hearts may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then lastly, be patient with others as the Holy Spirit works on them. In Thessalonians, Paul tells us, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to admonish the unruly and to be patient with everyone. The call of a watchman and watchwoman is to be obedient in lovingly warning those around them. Placing the emphasis on our own obedient sharing rather than other people's obedient responses. Did you catch that? Placing the emphasis on our obedient sharing rather than their obedient response. Our job is to share. It's the Holy Spirit's job to change hearts. Neither you or I will ever have the power to do that. And I hope that that frees you from unnecessary burden. It's not your job to convert your non-Christian coworker. It is, however, your job to love them, to be patient with them, and to share the hope that God has given you in Jesus. To lovingly warn them that this life is not all there is, that there's something beyond this life, beyond ourselves, beyond money, beyond status, beyond relationships, beyond vacations, beyond possessions, beyond success. It's our job to speak the truth in love. As Pastor Mike said last week, we're called to help people realize they're thirsty, not to actually make them drink. I hope that that truth allows you to then approach evangelism differently. Rather than a fear of failure or a dread or discomfort, I hope that you can approach evangelism with joy and hope and expectation. I hope you trust that God can and will change hearts in his time and his way. That was a big first part of our passage, so let's turn now to the second part. We still have a few verses left. We're in Ezekiel 3, starting back at verse 22. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak to you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face, but the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you. And you shall be bound with them, 
so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now this might seem like a strange shift, but as Christopher Wright puts it, such an awesome responsibility needed a fresh dose of divine reinforcement. I'm going to say that one more time. Such an awesome responsibility needed a fresh dose of divine reinforcement. We can see God call Ezekiel out into the valley. And there God repeats the same birthday vision he had given Ezekiel the week before. He visibly reveals his glory to him. Ezekiel followed God, not to the mountaintop, but to the valley. And there Ezekiel met with Jesus. Now you might be saying, how do you know that that was Jesus? Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So if you've seen God's physical glory, you have seen Jesus. Can you even imagine what an unlikely place? This was no mountaintop transfiguration, but a loving visitation and encouragement for Ezekiel in the midst of his valley. God lovingly knew the weight of the task that he had called Ezekiel to. He also knew that it wasn't a job anyone would take on their own accord. In his love and his tenderness and his condescension, God personally visits with Ezekiel. He wants to bolster his faith, to encourage his heart, and to strengthen him for the impossible task that lay ahead. Now, if we look at just the verbs, just the specific instructions that God gives Israel, it goes like this. Go shut yourself within your house. Cords will be placed on you. You shall be bound. You cannot go out among the people. Your tongue will cling to the roof of your mouth. You shall be mute, unable to reprove them. How in the world is he supposed to do his job? (laughs) It feels like God is setting Ezekiel up to fail, doesn't it? So what's the point of it all? Why would God give Ezekiel a mission and then make it seemingly impossible to fulfill it? This is when I'll ask you to go back to the second promise that we made to each other. We're going to remember that most things that are said to or by a prophet are not literal but are pictures. This is the case here as well. In John Calvin's commentary on this part of the passage, he says that it's the hearts of the people of Israel that are restraining Ezekiel from being able to preach his message. The prophet, pastor, and missionary Paul experienced the same dynamic with the congregation in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11 through 12, Paul, who's clearly in great anguish, says to them, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted by your own affections. 
It was their own hearts that had restricted them. Just as the cords that now bound Ezekiel, just as his tongue that now clung to the roof of his mouth, so the people of Israel had bound themselves by their own sin, by their own hard hearts and their own stubborn unrepentance. Their disobedience to God had bound Ezekiel's message and they had kept themselves from being able to hear the warning that they needed most to hear. If Ezekiel had immediately run to Israel with his message of warning in hopes of saving them, the opposite would have occurred. The current state of their hearts being so wicked, so wayward, they would not have been able to hear his message. They would have, so to speak, killed the messenger rather than hearing the message. Ezekiel needed a forced pause. Calvin says it's as if God is saying to Ezekiel, because therefore you see them not yet prepared for learning, wait a while until I prepare their ears for you, that they may attend to you. For as God shines upon us by his instruction, and we have thereby a certain pledge of his fatherly grace and favor, so also when his instruction is removed, it is just as if God has hid his face, nay, even turned his back upon us. Here we see a foreshadowing of Israel's future. There would be a time when God would truly silence his prophets, when he would turn his own face from Israel. There would be nearly 400 years of silence but not yet. I don't know about you, but at this point in the story, I really want to reach through the pages and grab Israel by the shoulders metaphorically and just shake them and say, hey guys, wake up. God has warned you time and time again. You need to take him seriously because he always keeps his word. Now, this is where we can be tempted to be superior and to think, well, I would never do that. I would never ignore such a grave warning. But is that really true? What about that one little thing that God has been asking you to do? Or that thing that he's been asking you to stop doing? Little by little, avoidance by avoidance, turning a deaf ear, turning a blind eye, shrugging off, and brushing aside, we get to this place. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's something we'll never stop needing to do, day by day, hour by hour, sometimes even minute by minute. In Hebrews 3, we read, So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Did you know that the Latin root for the word ignorance is the same as the word ignore? When we choose to ignore God's timely, loving warnings, we demonstrate our own ignorance. I don't know about you, 
but ignorance is definitely not a word that I want to be known by. I want my life to be full of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what about you? What do you want to be known for? God ends this chapter of Ezekiel by saying, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse, let him refuse. The choice is yours. My hope is that we can be hearers. Hearers who are so compelled by the message of God, so grateful for our own salvation, that we would choose to become watchmen and watchwomen, faithful to both watch and warn our own hearts as well as those around us. God has given us an awesome responsibility, but he has also given us divine reinforcement through Jesus. So let's go speak the truth in love, first and always to our own hearts. Let's pray. God, we need your help to do just that. Without your spirit, we would be just as these Israelites. So by your grace, help us to turn back to you over and over and over again, as often as is necessary. Help us to live a life of repentance. Help us to quickly and joyfully turn away from our sin and turn back into your loving arms. Help us to live like true children. God, we can't do it on our own, and I can't change a single heart here. It has to be the power of your Holy Spirit. So would you do that invisible work in us this week and next week and every week until we come to see you in glory? We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. His grace has planned it all, tis mine but to believe. And we're even told the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. So we can do it. We can do it, friends. May you go in the power of his spirit, believing him, trusting him, turning away from your sin and back to Jesus, to his loving, restoring arms. And may his spirit help you to help others do the same. May you go out in his power and his grace. Amen.